This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I am very excited for this interview. We've got... uh one of the biggest names in Australian business. We do. And no, you'd always tell me that you're the biggest name in Australian <laughs> business. I think this Such. name might be bigger. <laughs> it is bigger, Ren. It is bigger. It's our absolute pleasure to welcome to the studio, Mark Boris. Mark, welcome. Hey, guys. Bryce, Ren. Like, uh, it's interesting to be on the other side of the mic for a change. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, I don't do many of these, so I, I, mean, I, just, I haven't done one of these for so long, so uh, it's going to be fun. So Mark is an Australian businessman who is best known as the founder and chairman of Wizard Home Loans, Australia's second largest non-bank mortgage lender behind Aussie. He's now the chairman of Yellow Brick Road, a business which he founded in 2007. He's also the founder of Mentored, a platform that inspires, educates and motivates future business owners. And we're going to cover so much of Mark's journey in business in today's episode. And we should shout out that if you haven't uh, actually listened to the episode where we appeared on Mark's show, do yourself a favor, go and listen to that. We thoroughly enjoyed that experience. So uh, Ren, let's kick off. Let's do it. So Mark, uh, we always like to start uh, by hearing the story of someone's first investment. We find there's generally a good lesson or a good story that comes out of it. So to kick us off today, what was your uh, first? That's a good question. Um, the very first time I invested in time and effort because I never had any money, growing up. So I uh, was in a business um, and my first one was, I was, I think I was in year nine at school and uh, at the little school out there at Lakemba. I was uh, in my garden, which in Punchbowl where I lived in those days, I thought we had the world's biggest backyard, but it turns out it was very, very small. And mum and dad had a tree out there that um, had branches on it. And uh, I used to go and break branches off and just just out of curiosity, just have a look at them, what happened. And I one time broke a branch. I've left it out. It dried. I come back the next week. I remember it clearly. And I noticed that when I looked inside at the ed- on the end of the branch or the it was more of a twig, there was a core in there, which was a different color to the bark. So I got a coat hanger and I pushed the core out. And I realized I made a, a, a something straight and it was like a straw. And I was stuffing around with it. And I was watching a show on telly in those days, they were cowboy shows. And uh, they had pipes, 
And I, you guys are probably too young to remember. But people had pipes. It was a cool thing that pipes <laughs> those days. Everyone had a bloody pipe. And I thought to myself, um, oh, I can make a pipe. So I got my cricket stump and I sawed off like a, a chunk of the cricket stump and I got Dad's hand drill and dr- drilled the middle bit out and drilled a hole through it and stuck the branch in it. It was a branch, a little <laughs> twig in it. And I formed myself a pipe. And by the way, the TV shows in those days, they had old school pipes made out of corn co- uh, cobs and stuff like that. Mm. So then I had this pipe and I was stuffing around with it and I thought to myself, uh, I've got to smoke something. Um, so I went in Mum's kitchen and I got tea leaves out of the tea thing and I put filled up with tea leaves and I lit it and I re- worked out, I didn't know this, but I re- worked out you can use them tea leaves like tobacco. And uh, so I was smoking it. Anyway, of course, you know, you get excited about these things and I took it to school, showed all my mates <laughs> at school and with the tea leaves and I smoked it and everything. And uh, the guys started saying to me at my school, can you make me one? <laughs> so I started making them, selling them. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And then they all got found out. We all got found out by the head, headmaster um, contacted my mum and I had to go and say, you know, I had to stop doing it. But nonetheless, that was my first sort of uh, investment of time and effort with risk associated with it, um, which something – it was successful in that there was a market for it. Um, and uh, it was very rudimentary, obviously, but I, I, I reckon I was in year nine, so I would have been about um, 14, 13 or 14. So that's the very first foray into business just based off the back of curiosity and that sort of – yeah, I can do that. Yeah. So, Mark, um, love that first story, 13, 14, everyone sort of, you know, dreams of then taking those business stories from a young age and becoming a successful entrepreneur, which you've definitely done. Is there any sort of major learning, I guess, from from that first initial foray into making straws and selling to, to, to your mates that you've carried through or that you then sort of built on and, and sort of cr- started creating businesses from there? Probably not consciously. Yeah. Um, today, yes, consciously. But then what it did is it affirmed the importance of curiosity and believing that you can do something and being prepared to be an observer. So observation I think is a really important thing when it comes to business. There's a lot of power in observation, you know, like uh, non-judgmental observation, just observing the way things exist and happen. Really just even from a sort of like a physics point of view, the power that you get out of sitting around watching how things happen, how people interact, you know, how people respond, um, how uh, what what creates interest, and then just saying to yourself, well, how can I improve on that, or how can I actually do that, compete or, or not compete, participate in life. There's some people who just participate, <laughs> and there's some people who observe but they never talk. Mm. If you want to be in business, and you've got to learn to blend those two things: observe and participate, then observe and then participate. It's a mix of the two, but the two are very powerful when you bring them together. And it's and it's not a there's no getting excited or there's no being passionate. All that bullshit to me, that's all bullshit. It's quite logical. It's deduction based, and it is uh, dispassionate. You nearly got to go about it in a dispassionate way. You know, Isaac Newton observed his three laws, his immutable laws of motion, which still exist today. Came about through his observation. So that, I think that's really important. Mm. Well, if, if Newton has three laws, I think you could add a fourth immutable law, which is that Australians love residential property. And they sure do. You, you observed that law um, and started Wizard Home Loans in the mid-90s. Can you tell us about the, the, I guess, the inspiration, the observation, and then the participation that really got Wizard off the ground? Well, that's a really good question. I've never really thought about 
sort of framing it that way or, or th- framing the narrative around that. But when I think back about it, um, the first thing is um, that I would just say to you is that I was always observing capital markets. So the Wizard business, the Aussie business, the Rams business and others, there were many others, were premised upon or prefaced by one really important factor. That was deregulation in the lending market. That is, they had an inquiry similar to the inquiry that the um, Treasurer is now calling Forward and Rational Reserve Bank. There was an inquiry back in the calling Campbell inquiry, which sort of made some recommendations around lending in this country that it should be deregulated. And uh, Keating was the one in the end who did it. And the deregulation basically meant that others, people other than banks um, could lend money. So people like Wizard and all that sort of people. And I knew about that because I was always observing or or being involved in a reading sense, what's going on in a marketplace. And the reason I was interested in that sort of stuff, because I, I figured I had, I had a master's degree in um, capital markets, which I obtained from the University of New South Wales um, when I was in my 20s. And um, I therefore had an interest in reading about something that didn't actually exist. My thesis was based on what happened in the US. But I was always curious as to know why it didn't happen in Australia. And then I saw this event that allowed it to happen in Australia, deregulation. And then I got quite curious about, um, could I do it? And I, I, knew, I knew John quite well. And I was watching what John was doing with Macquarie Bank. And I was watching what the other John, John Kingwon was doing with Rams. Um, they were early starters. Um, at that stage, I was working, uh, I think I was working law firm. I can't quite remember, but a bit like the uh, pipe, I knew where the parts were because I've been watching this process. Mm. So I thought to myself, I, I can do this, but I needed a host. I mean, a bit like I found a tree in the front garden. That was my host. I have to have a, ho- I have, to have a host to implement my idea and, uh, and then participate. And so I found a host. The host was a company called um, Mortgage Partners or something like that. It was a group of four guys who had a mortgage broker business, which helped me borrow some money. And I needed the money to borrow that money to do a property development, to build some house – it was a house land package – deal out at, um, down Southern Highlands where I bought the land. I had to settle on it. I didn't have the money to settle on it because I never had any money, same as when I was a kid. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't borrow the money and I had to build 20 houses and 20 lots of land and build a road and all that shit. And these guys arranged it for me and I thought that, that was a pretty good job of what they did. I'm going to go to them and say, why don't you go and do what Aussie and Rams are doing because you're really good at this mortgage business. But I'll show you how to do it in a technical sense. Mm. And I approached them. I bought 40%. Then ultimately I bought 100%. And I changed the name for whatever it was called in those days. I can't remember. That's how un, uh, non-memorable the name was. It was just a pretty crap name. And uh, I kept these guys in the business with me and I gave them a little bit of equity and uh, I turned it into Wizard Home Loans. That's how I got involved in Wizard Home Loans. Again, through observation. And I think that's important. You've got a skill base or you've got something you really think you're good at or you've studied or you have a better sense of than most other people. Therefore, you've got a bit of an edge. Um, and you've got to keep observing what's going on in the marketplace. That means you've always got to be reading. In my case, I was always reading. These days you can be watching. It doesn't matter. You know, get on YouTube and other places, Instagram, et cetera, or podcasts. Mm. Um, but you've got to be observing whatever faculties you, you want to use, then blend the two, and then believe in yourself you can do it. Grab the tools, find a host. I don't mean that's it. I'm not talking in a parasitic sense, but <laughs> find a host. Because you know, some, sometimes it's important to get the working parts Mm. And I had to find the working parts. I had to find a tree mm. when I was a kid. This time I found a business with, you know, all the limbs in it. Mm. And then I just turned it around into what I thought of what it could be. Mm. Yeah. 
I like that uh, can I do it vibe because um, a lot of people out there with business ideas and dreams of being an entrepreneur are probably at that stage of saying, can I do this? And a lot of people would probably get to the answer of no, or I'm not willing to try or what was it? What are the boxes that you ticked that sort of led you to say, yeah, I can, I can do this. Like what, and, and maybe some advice for those that are at that point in their journey of going, can I do this? Well, don't ask the question too many times. That's the first thing. You know, as Nike says, just do it. I mean, you and don't over overcook it, don't overthink it, um, don't overstretch all the parts, don't get too much too heavy into the planning stage. And I always say it's better to do the work and backfill. So you know, go forward, just keep backfilling all the time. You know, like just keep digging forward and just don't, don't expect it to be perfect. Anyone who's a perfectionist on your scenario that you just put to me, they'll never start. Yeah. So you've got to start. You can't. Therefore, you can't be a perfectionist. You've got to make sure that you sort of have a general idea where you want to go. You've got to have this belief in yourself that, okay, look, I'll, I'll go forward, I'll dig some holes, but I'll, you know, if I make too much mess, I'll backfill. Like, you know, basically uh, get a big branch and tie it around your fucking waist <laughs> and everywhere you go, let it cover your tracks. <laughs> you know, be nice. prepared to do that, if you know what I mean. Like uh, yeah, yeah. don't get too over-exuberant over, uh, about, uh, oh, fuck, I don't want to make mistakes because you're going to make shitloads of them, yeah. shitloads of mistakes. And, and, and this is not about making mistakes. It's about learning. You know, you're going to learn on the way through. So if you have this, I'm going to learn about this on the way through, I don't know. I know some of the skills, but I don't really know how to be in the business of this. I'm going to learn about this, particularly if it's some sort of like startup, new sort of uh, new construction and be prepared to make the mistakes and just have in your mind, I've got to have some way of covering my tracks. So I've got to have, well, I call it backfilling or covering my tracks. It doesn't matter. And you've got to have that mindset. So this is a mindset thing, Bryce. It's about changing the way you think about mistakes and turn it into I'm going to learn and I'm prepared. Th- these mistakes, I'm prepared to learn and I'm going to learn the whole way through. You know, even my mentor business, like, what the fuck? Like, I didn't know it was how to run a publishing <laughs> business. I, I didn't know how to do a podcast. You know, we started off as a Mark Burra show, but like, I had no sense of it whatsoever. Like my very first podcast, I just turned up. When I did the first Celebrity Apprentice or first Apprentice before the Celebrity Apprentice, I'd never done television in my life. And I watched one episode of Donald Trump before I went on the show. <laughs> one episode. And I didn't watch that all the way through either because I got bored. That's all you needed. So, and I thought I got a general idea what to do. Yeah. And uh, because if I had have overthought of it, I would have got nervous as shit because, you know, they got on-air signs, you got, you got you bugged up, you got things in your ear, you got – audio shit all over you, you sit in a room, they've got lights, camera action. You know, like I never even went into the studio before I did the first episode. And uh, and then when you're there, you sit there confronted with 12 in that on that period, at that, at that stage it was 12 um, candidates. You think, well, what the fuck, what, what am I going to do here? And you just go through the process, make mistakes. You know, fortunately it gets edited. So, well, you know, it's like you guys do it. You edit. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. make up, you make yeah. stuff. That, well, that's interesting. I'll put that in. That's shit. I'll take that out. Mm. You know, you, you're sort of um, looking after your audience and looking after your own rep. Mm. But that's that's what I'm saying about backfilling, make mistakes, be prepared to learn. Don't worry about that sort of stuff. Don't try and perfect it. You know, like even now my Yellow Big Road business, I'm still trying to perfect it now. Like what I mean by that is I'm still working on my model, changing my model. You know, people say, oh, you change mine all the time. I don't change mine. I'm just responding to markets and, mm. and changing what my audience wants and changing, you know, what my distribution wants or whatever the case may be. I'm always – Let's call it improving. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Love that. So uh, you founded Wizard in 96. Uh, in 2004, you sold it to GE, GE Money. General Electric. Yeah. Um, 
we're fascinated by this idea of the right time to sell because it can be hard. And, you know, for eight years you would have been working on this business, building it, it would have been your baby. And in 2004 you decided it was the right time. Talk us through that. Well, from 96 to 98 I only had 40%, so I actually didn't work in the business at all. Um, I was just an investor. So I sort of sold my house and the money I got from selling my house, so the business used that as working capital and to do some other things like sponsor New South Wales and stuff like that. So I didn't really start getting in the business until about 98 because we had a dispute in the organisation and uh, one of the major guys there, there was a dispute as to how we were going to grow or the speed at which we wanted to grow. My view was I just want to grow as fast as possible and uh, I said, therefore, I'm going to lend the business 250 grand to sponsor New South Wales and the state of origin. He was against that. Mm. So I bought him out. And then I, then I bought everybody out. And then, uh, so like, I Is got. That how to, you resolve disputes? Basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, the dispute, the dispute got quite, uh, quite bad. Like, he actually got a, um, managed to get a, um, an injunction against us, against us for trading. And, uh, the, the judge ordered us to go into mediation. So it was pretty heavy. Um, but I bought him out and, um, and then I took control of the business. So it was around 98 that I got fair income involved in the business because at that stage I had too big a percentage not to be involved. And, uh, and he was sort of like the managing director, so to speak, of the business. So he's gone. So someone had to lead the joint. So I sort of stepped into it more, more so in those days. Um, so 98 to 2004, to, um, to answer your question, Ren, like um, how do you know when to sell or do you plan to sell all the time? Mm-hmm. I take the view from day one you've got to be ready to sell. So therefore plan to sell. So f- think about who could be the buyers. Let's say your business, for example. There's no point saying, oh, when? Now, someone might come to you tomorrow and say, we want to buy your business. So you're always saying, I'm building the business to sell. So therefore you've got to ask yourself the question, how much would I want for it? Mm. So if I'm going to sell next year, uh, do I want X amount of dollars for it? Do I want um, you know, $50 million for my business? Then if my business is worth 50, I would sell for $50 million. Is my, if for my business to be worth $50 million, what is the multiplier that the industry applies to businesses like mine um, against my revenue? So let's say in your industry, it's uh, you're a publisher, broadcast, let's say it's a, and growing, let's say it's a five-time multiple. So if you want to get 50 million, you've got to be making 10 million a year, for argument's sake, you know, um, or earning 10 million a year. So in two years. So then you say, okay, well, Getting, we're making uh, five million a year. That means we've got to double our revenue. So to get it to ten, at which point it will be worth fifty. So how do I double my revenue from here to the, the next twelve months? If I've got to spend more money in advertising, I've got to have greater distribution. I've got to get better guests. I've got to put in. If we're doing one podcast, we're going to now got to do five podcasts a week. I've got to do ten podcasts. What have I got to do to get the revenues up? And that's how I always look at stuff. Yeah. Okay. So when Kerry got involved in my business. Just for context, Kerry Packer. I Kerry Packer, yeah, yeah. Wizard. Yeah, yeah. so Kerry bought 50% of my business. Before he bought, just before he gave me the check and put the money into the business, he said to me, I want this business to be worth in five years' time $500 million. Okay. And I thought, what the fuck? <laughs> um, <clears throat> how do you do what, that? What, what valuation did he invest at? At uh, $25 million. Wow. Okay, so he wanted you to 20 exit in five years. So yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had to, I had to do a twenty timer. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. yeah. So uh, it's, that's and, it. Uh, and you don't say no to Kerry. <laughs> no, and I, but I thought it was a bit crazy. But you know, he, he knew more about this sort of stuff than me. And he didn't say he wanted to sell. He just said, "Let's assume, let's put ourselves in a position every day between here and f- year five that we could sell for five hundred million in year five. Wow. 
not not that I want to sell. Like, it's, it, yeah. and these are called liquidity events. When you have shareholder agreements, the, the, you know, big shareholders come in. They always want a liquidity event. They say the liquidity event is going to be in five years' time. The liquidity event basically means we sit down, all of us, and we sit down and we agree to we list, we sell, or we stay. That makes sense. That's what most big investors want. Mm. So his view was, here's my liquidity event. Will happen in five years' time. We'll sit down and work out whether we sell, list, or stay. Yeah. He didn't care which was the. He wasn't saying we've got to sell. But to do that, you've got to say, okay, well, what value would we sell at? What value do we want to have? It makes you start to think about these things, which you would not ordinarily think about. Otherwise, you just get caught in the weeds every day doing what you're doing and you don't have a bigger strategic thought sitting around you. So, like, in everything you do and plan should be around about what around when do I want to exit and what price do I want to get and how do I work backwards from there? So you build your budget off the back of that. So that's what we did. We built our budget off the back of that. And, um, you know, do we need to make acquisitions? You know, do we need to grow through acquisition or could we grow enough organically? How much money do we need to allocate to advertising? You know, in those days it was all television and radio and paper, newspaper. But, like, how do we do? Where do we get our best bang for the buck? Everything we did was around that process, mm. everything. So I didn't know when was the best time to exit Renault. I had no idea. But we always, from day one, were building it as if we were going to do an exit. Mm. And the reason I knew to exit was the valuation we got offered was exactly what he said. Yeah. And it was it was like four and a half, five years from the time I, we, he, and I, he and I got together. I thought, well, that seems to be right. And also the market was getting a bit tricky. So, you know, it's about trying to get out at the best time. You know, it's hard arbitrage markets, but it's about trying to get out at the height. So there was, you know, the property market was on fire mm. until about 2004. Yeah. End of that. It started coming off about 2005. I could see it. I'm a good indicator because well, my businesses are a good indicator because applications started to drop off. Yeah, yeah. People stop buying property, therefore, they st- because they can't borrow as much for some reason, interest rates might be too high, like they aren't, they're going now. Mm. Or alternatively, um, we start to see purchase prices not increasing. And, uh, you know, we get a good look into the residential market. Yeah. And uh, I could see that it was happening. And uh, Australian property market post my sale just dropped off the cliff until it hit 2008 when the GFC occurred, which really dropped off the cliff after mm. that. But so we were first out. Yeah, you you look back in history and you see GE Money uh, entering Australia, wanting to make a big acquisition, buys Wizard, and then three years later the GFC hits. Like great timing for you, terrible timing for them. <laughs> well, well, don't forget that GE generally was already in the Australian market and GE was the world's largest consumer finance company. Largest. Really? Bigger than Bank of America, bigger than any other MX, anybody. World's largest consumer finance company. They had they already owned in Australia businesses like you probably wouldn't remember them, but like Avco, etc., which became GE Money, which were those sorts of companies. It was my very first loan I had with these these guys back when I was twenty to buy a colour television. When colour TV just came out. Um, I couldn't wait to go and buy colour television. I went to a place called Norman Ross, which is currently now these days called Harvey Norman, and I had no money. And uh, I borrowed $300 and I borrowed it from Avco, which G owned. So, like, I'm 20. It's going back 46 years. And uh, I worked out the interest rate by the time I paid it off and I paid 35% interest. Um, (laughs) But I didn't give a shit because I got a telly. And, like, for me, I had a colour TV and TV then stopped at 10.30 at night. So I would no literally, yeah, yeah. So I would literally, it was only nine, ten, seven ABC. That's right. And I would watch television all day just to see this colour. It wasn't a great mm. colour, but I would do this. Uh, and so G was already here. Okay, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I saw, there was, it's funny, you know, I'm, I'm not a superstitious dude, but um, 
and I'm not a, like, you know, the universe and all that shit. But, <laughs> but what I remember is this. Kerry said to me, he said, not only have we got to have a price we would sell for in five years' time, we've got to find who the buyer is. So you've got to know, you've got to build the business to suit a buyer. Let's say you're a publisher, you're, you might be saying, well, maybe News Limited might want to buy me or maybe Channel 9 want to buy me, you know, part of the Fairfax mob or whatever. You know, you've got to find a buyer and why would they want to buy you? You know, then and what have I got to do to build it for that particular buyer so that that becomes attractive for that buyer or at least not, un- not, at least not unattractive? And as I said, I was always reading, I read everything in those days, especially about my game, mortgages. And I remember reading the paper and there was a guy called Don Argus who was the, those days as a CEO, very famous CEO banker of National Australia Bank. And Don Argus was in an interview, just like we hear the CEOs of the big banks today. And the, and the question by the AFR, the financial review journalist to him was this, what keeps you awake at night? Which competitor coming into this marketplace could take, could completely fuck up your business? Mm. And right now, the same question gets asked by journalists to the bosses of the big four banks in particular, and they, the answer is Amazon, Google, they worry about that. Then the answer was, Argus said, someone like General Electric coming to Australia and participating in this marketplace because the G balance sheet mm. was massive. Yeah. <laughs> World's largest company at the time by market cap. Mm. Its market cap was greater than every Australian company, including BHP and the banks, added up together. Really? Wow. wow. In 2004. <laughs> so it was massive. So it had the capacity to take on the Australian banks who made a fortune. It, it was just like it was, they, were, they were the most profitable banks in the world. And, uh, and I remember reading that Don Argus say that. And to be honest with you, I didn't really know much about General Electric, Electric when I heard Don Argus say that. But it did stick in my mind. It did make me go and start doing some research. Research, And then I worked out that GE owned a mortgage insurance company in Australia called Genworth. Changed the name laid down the track, but it's called Genworth. It was the biggest mortgage insurer in Australia. So every deal we did at Wizard, we used to have to get mortgage insured through a company called Genworth. I made sure then I met the guy who ran this in Australia. And his name was Tom Gentilly. So they had the biggest mortgage in Australia. They had all sorts of other stuff in, a, in the country, in Australia. They're the biggest aeroplane maker, for example, in the, in the world. I got to know Tom and uh, because we did business with him. We were one of the biggest non-bank suppliers of mortgage insurance requirement to them. And I started to discuss this with Tom. Like, you know, at some stage I'm going to want to get out of this business. What's your interest? And I knew that what would worry him is if I went to a bank that he would lose all the mortgage insurance business. Because the banks didn't use G, they used somebody else. And especially St George Bank, for example, they, they self-insured. So they did it all through Singapore. Mm. They had insurance policy, which they sold then off in Deloitte. So they, again, observing yeah. the marketplace yeah. and sort of then knowing where the host is. And the host was GE, so to speak. I just had to get them interested. Yeah. And, um, and they were interested. Yeah. And then In a big way. A big way. But I, put, <laughs> but I told Kerry and now Kerry said, I don't want to sell. Oh, really? Yeah, no, no. Originally, Kerry didn't want to sell. He wanted to buy. What? Okay. So he he owned a thing called Challenger at the time, Mm. the Challenger Group. Yeah. And he wanted me to – when I put that to him, he said, well, you sell it to me. Sell it to the Challenger Group Mm. and I'm going to make you chairman of the Challenger Group and I'll give you shares in Challenger. Okay. And I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, shares in GE or shares in Challenger? I think I'll take the shares in GE. Yeah. By the way, it didn't turn out to be such a great outcome. Because I was going to say, I hope you sold. <laughs> no, I didn't. I got, I got, I got caught in the GFC. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, I mean, I still sold, and I still well. Don't worry. But I, but, 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 but I know I had the world's. I, I know I took shares in General Electric because 
it, it had never not paid an increased dividend in 30 years. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And GE was the only listed company that was originally put on the Dow Jones Index in the 19th century. Mm. The only company remaining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it had grown every year yeah. from that point and it never stopped paying an increased dividend every quarter mm. for 30 years. So I thought this is going to be the safest thing in the world. But what I didn't realise if a GFC came, which no one knew would happen, but they're, them being the world's largest, therefore becoming the world's most exposed. Mm. Yeah. So they lost their credit rating yeah. as a result of it. And they were the only, there was only six AAA-rated companies in the world. Really? Today's only five, I think, and G was one of them. But when the GFC hit, because of their exposure to the consumer finance market, G lost its credit rating, mm. and then they their price collapsed like pretty much straight away. Yeah. So you sold in two thousand and four. In two thousand and seven, you start Yellow Brick Road, and I am fascinated by this idea of entrepreneurs going again. You know, you had probably more money than you needed, and uh, you could have done anything. You didn't need to work, um, but you could have started a business in any field and you decided to go back into the property home loans space. And I'm fascinated by entrepreneurs that for love or for passion or because they have an edge in this field, they go again in the same field. So what was the thinking there and um, starting a real, a real estate-focused business in 2007, how did that go? Um, well, the reason I started is it's a little bit more to the story because I, I, those t- in those days – 2000, from 2005 to 2009, James Packer and I had a joint venture with General Electric outside of Australia. So G bought Australia and New Zealand from me for Wizard, but I kept, James and I kept the rights everywhere else in the world. Mm, all right. So G come to us and they said, look, we've got banking licence in 36 countries around the world. Um, some are doing, some do, but we're really big in India, Brazil, Mexico and Russia and Germany. And they said, we'd like to form a global joint venture with you to set up wizard, the wizard distribution system around the world using our banking licences and because uh, they thought it was a good way to set up branches. Mm. They liked the model. But they said to me, well, but we're hopeless at setting businesses up. We can't set businesses up. So they said to me, why don't we do this together? So they said, we'll put in the balance sheet and you guys can have 40% of the business and you can set the rest up. Of course, James did nothing. He had 20%. <laughs> he had 20% and I had 20%. And we had to put our share of money in too, by the way. So, you know, we had to match dollar for dollar. Um, not dollar for dollar, but they were putting in 16, we are putting in 40. Mm. Um, and uh, so we, we said we'll start off in India. So we set up a business in India. We had a Wizard Home Loans in India. Oh, wow. And we did that from 2005 through to 2009. And we used a GE balance sheet. We had um, 58 branches in India, become the fourth largest lender in India. Wow. wow. In a period of three years, we had like 500 staff. And I used to go there every six weeks and I'd spend a week there and then I'd fly home. And uh, I did that for a couple of years. And then during that period, G decided they wanted to apply for a banking license in Australia and sit it on the wizard business here in Australia. And they had the application in. And they also, to be a bank, you have to be able to not only – a wizard branch to be a, a banking branch, not only should lend money, but they should be able to, you know, take money in and do other stuff, financial products. But G again, didn't know how to do that. They said to me, why don't you set something up, which is on the other side of the ledger. So it's not lending money, but it's planning, wealth advice, wealth products. So I set up, the, so I said, I, okay, I'll set up this thing called Yellow Brick Road. Hmm. So wizard is your branches. The, the idea was you walk in a wizard branch, you go to wizard 
on the left-hand side, for example, yeah. to do your mortgage. And if you go on the right-hand side, you get your financial planning done. Yeah, right, okay. So I set it up. Yeah. And they said, you know, if, if we like it enough, we'll buy it off you. There's no downside. So I set it up. That's what I did. That mm. was the whole reason about Yellow Brick Road in 2007. And to do it, I went and bought accounting practices. I went and bought uh, financial planning businesses. I went and bought um, insurance broking businesses, the, the whole kit and boot, caboodle. The objective was um, to continue to run the wizard business globally and our next stop was Russia, and then after that we were planning to go to Mexico and Brazil. But then, and now, and we had this financial planning, planning business called Yellow Brick Road. But it did no mortgages. Mm. It wasn't allowed to do mortgages because I was the chairman of Wizard in Australia still. GFC hits. G says we're out of everything. We, yeah. don't, we don't want to be in India anymore. We're going to sell the Wizard business in Australia. Um, we're not interested in Yellow Brick Road. And oh fuck, you know. And uh, <laughs> plus, my shares are like going south. And geez, this isn't good. So. Sometimes self-interest is a really important factor <laughs> in what you do. And because I didn't know how far the share price would go down. I had no idea what was going on. Like, you know, I, no one knew at the time. It's a bit like what everyone felt in COVID. When it mm. No one knew what the outcomes were going to be. So I thought, well, I'm going to take insurance policy out here. G released me from all my obligations, which meant I could go into mortgages. And that was in 2009, February 2009. Yep. As a result of being released in February 2009, um, I then – took Yellow Brick Road into the mortgage industry, yeah. literally like the day after. And the financial planning staff and all the other stuff, insurance, it wasn't really my go, but I kept that wealth piece going. But my main objective was to lend money. Mm. And um, and I can now use my model that G was and me were running, you know, rolling out in other places in the world. I would use my model here in Australia. Um, Wizard, the business, in Australia, got sold to Aussie and CBA together. They bought it. They closed Wizard down and rebranded all the Wizard branches Aussie. And today, CBA still owns the name and I've tried to buy from them. They won't sell it. They won't release it to me. As a result of that, I was able then to set up the Yellow Brick Road. Effectively, it was too big good an opportunity. I could set up Yellow Brick Road and take the place of Wizard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all right. I did. I was just, just sitting there looking at me. So <laughs> why wouldn't I? I mean, it was in the middle of the GFC. Not a great time to start a financial services business, but it doesn't matter. Like uh, it turned out to be a really good outcome. So you know, sometimes the best time to do things is when it's a shit time. Yeah, yeah. 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 The tide's completely out. You know. Yeah. yeah, love that. Well, Mark, we are going to turn to some other aspects of your entrepreneurial journey in a moment, but we're just going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So, Mark, you're uh, in the publishing business as well, which you've mentioned with Mentored. You know, we've had the pleasure on coming on one of the podcasts, but it's a platform designed to like inspire and educate future business leaders. You've spoken to plenty of startups around the country. I'm interested to know what are some common struggles that you often come across with startups or potentially some pitfalls or things that startups overestimate when they're, when they're kicking off? Well, the biggest one is patient capital, money, mm-hmm. you know, but money that's not looking for return straight away. Generally speaking, they're always trying to raise money. Fortunately, some startups can self-fund. That's a different thing. But I'm talking about most startups, especially tech ones, can't self-fund. And generally speaking, the mistake, let's call it um, the illusion that they sort of operate under, is that I'll go raise money when I need to, but when you need to raise money, generally speaking, you can't raise money because it's pretty fucking obvious to everybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. Like right and, now, yeah. Yeah, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. Like, uh, and like, and, but when you don't need to raise the money, generally speaking – if you go to the marketplace, the thing that's going through your mind is, I don't want to dilute my equity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't want to give anything away. Mm. Well, so what do you do? That's the time you do it. You do do it. You buy the bullet. You're better off having a percentage of a smaller percentage of a bigger business that will survive than you have a big percentage of a smaller business that might struggle if it needs cash flow. Yeah. If it because you know, like if if you can't, there are there are. You know, some people come on my podcast telling me they're in a – then one of the reasons they come on my podcast is because they might be in the middle of a race, Series B or Series A, whatever, because they use my platform to promote themselves, which is fine. I don't care. It's cool. It's good. But I always keep in contact with a lot of those people, and I often say to them – I go and have a coffee with them, and I say, listen, how much are you trying to raise? They say, three million. I'm at a million and a half. I say, close the race. Take the million and a half. Mm. Carry your say to me. The money's on the table. Take it off the table. <laughs> don't ever leave the money on the table. Yeah. Ever. Don't you know? Think that you're going to get three if you've got one, only got one half. I mean, if if it's like oversubscribed, you know, yeah, that's different. Mm-hmm. But it's all about global liquidity. I mean, one thing you got to remember, I would say to people, you got to remember is the world has a certain amount of liquidity, just the whole world, okay. And unless governments are printing money, but they used to, they, that stopped, okay. That liquidity is a constant. It's and it just moves from asset class to asset class, wherever the greatest return is relative to the risk. For example, we've just gone through this, really low interest rates, like ridiculously low interest rates globally. So people were saying, you know, I'm prepared to take a bigger risk. So let put, let's put put 10% of my portfolio or my, my family assets or whatever it is into startups. Because, you know, and if I, I'll take a view that one out of every 10 might kill it, go really good, which means I can increase my total portfolio yield. But when interest rates start going from 0.1% of a percent or less, when, you know, if you're putting your money on deposit at retail – but now to 3%, you say, wait a minute, I'll just take a rest. I won't put any more money into startups. Mm. Don't think you'll ever arbitrage those processes. Mm. When you, when the money was available, everybody, there was liquidity everywhere in the world mm. and you didn't need the money because everybody was like, was like manna from heaven, you know, like yeah. just fucking falling all over you. <laughs> and then the moment, the moment uh, it's, things are dropping, you go, shit, my sales are no good. I do. I need some liquidity, more cash flow, mm. and that's the worst time because you might get it, but you might get screwed. Yeah. And uh, 
you know, if you thought you're going to give away equity before, you're going to give away more equity this time. Mm. So that was a thing that I learned from Kerry. You know, we had two other partners, um, not, not in the beginning, but we got to a point we were growing so fast and so big. We got two bank partners in two global um, international banks, not Australian banks. On each occasion, we had to give equity away. But Kerry said, like, so what? Like, uh, look at the valuations we're getting and they're putting the money in. We don't have to put the money in. We're talking about large sums of money they're putting in. We'll, we'll get, allowed us to go make acquisitions. So we grew at a much faster rate than we would ever grow. And, you know, that that's something I learned from him. And maybe him as a gambler, you know, like he was famous for this. You know, if he was winning big, mm. the casinos didn't like it. He just took, <laughs> took it all, it all hoovered it up. Yeah. See you later, I'm out of here. And if, even if he was there for 20 minutes, as soon as he started getting the cash on the table, he, he's gone. Yeah, right. And one of the reasons why he was banned from a lot of um, casinos, in the end, I think, as I recall, only one casino group, um, Steve Wynn, would allow him to play in the casinos. Yeah, wow. Is that why – did he end up buying Crown or did, was it That's James. That, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I was going to say he got banned so much he had to buy one. <laughs> well, we, <laughs> in Vegas, like, there's, written, there's books written about him in Vegas. Like he's so famous as a gambler. Yeah, wow. Uh, totally famous as a gambler. And I went with him a few times to various casinos with him. They're – there were places in Vegas, especially when he said Bellagio, where they would give him premises and he'd have his pilot there and his doctor there and his, have a, you know, international polo players, you know, the whole lot of people from Argentina. <laughs> and so. and, but but he, he would go, where he played was his own table, available 24 hours a day. Mm. Nobody else allowed on it. And, in fact, one, one time I went there, they actually had made a little kitchen for him. Wow. So that that he could they could actually because he only ate certain things like chops and sausages and steak and eggs and some of that it was like you know mixed grills <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and there were never vegetables or fish or anything like that and uh, that person was there available to cook twenty four hours a day wow. whenever wow. he wanted and he could gamble twenty four yeah. hours a day whenever he wanted and I'll never forget that and uh, and it was just that the person whatever you call a deal or whatever the person is just stood there waiting for him to turn up and they'd have wow. a shift and someone else come in and. Shift. <laughs> So that's how famous he was, and and but I watched him, and as soon as he start winning, he's gone, man. Yeah, and nice. that would shit them because what they're hoping is you put it all back in. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And that, that was part of his mentality, and, not, and he told me that money's there, grab it. So liquidity is a big deal. Mm. Raising money is a big deal. So that's probably what I see of those startups that come in to see me, especially startups or those who want to go into the next stage of growth. It's capital, uh, a lack of capital. Yeah. Patient capital, and the best time to get it is when there's lots of liquidity, mm. and you lock it in. Mm. Yeah. So we've spoken a lot about Kerry Packer, and you know, in terms of the pantheon of Australian business greats, he would be right up there. But I think you, more than most people, have had exposure to a wide range of business people in your, you know, wizard days with Kerry, in with all the startups you're speaking to now. I guess across all the great business people that you've met, are there any common traits that you see time and time again? Appetite for risk, but understanding what risk actually means. Mm. So it's not just the probability of the event occurring that you're worried about. It's the probability of the event you're worried about multiplied by the gravity of the event you're worried about. So you've got to understand gravity and probability. Mm. Risk is the um, not the sum of but the multiplication of those two things. So you, you've got to apply those two things to each other. So they all had a good understanding of risk. I had a lot of exposure to Alan Bond, something that, like, like of course he went to jail and he did the wrong thing, et cetera, whatever. A common trait of someone like him, I was at a law firm, we represented him, and all his people, unbelievable vision. 
like if you go up the Gold Coast now and you go to Rabina and you look at the um, university, Bond University, mm. and then you look at the whole suburb of Rabina. I've never put two and two together before. That's him. Alan yeah, Byron. right. Okay, there you go. He did that, right? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. he also, but he's, he, but he also created like a city. Yeah. So Rabina was nothing. It was nothing there. And Rabina today is like people live in houses and, you know, parks and schools and shopping centres. and It's like a big deal. Like he's one of the best parts of the Gold Coast. Mm. And his vision, like if, if he had told you that vision back in 1985 when he started this whole process, I remember it, you'd have said you're mad. Like, you, you, you know, it's hard to see into 2022. Mm. Like that's Nostradamus stuff, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but he did it. Yeah. That's that's his thing. I mean, so a great visionary, John Spalvins, who controlled the Adsteam Group, David Jones, Adsteam, Penfolds Wines, Brickworks, Woolworths, uh, Industrial Equity Group, the, the, the biggest, he would have been the biggest employer in the country in the late 80s, yeah. which, again, I was at a law firm doing his work. John Spalvins, massive visionary, where things can go, and a big brain guy, a really you know big thinker. Um, but a, a great vision as to where the world goes. These guys didn't survive. None of them made it. Uh, they, but they, they made money, don't get me wrong, they made a lot of money, but they didn't actually get to see the vision out. But the vision actually got happened. Yeah, Those yeah, things yeah. they envisioned actually happened. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, the two th- a great imagination. And there's a thing that I always say, fear is the great thief of imagination. If you're a, a person who's over-considered and fearful, then your imagination will be diluted. Now, I'm not saying these guys had no fear. Mm. I'm not saying they're fearless, but they didn't let fear get in the way of their imagination. So they controlled, managed to control their, their, their fear to allow their imagination to open up and broaden out. Mm. And I think they're, they're, they're some of the traits, they're, they're those traits. I mean, they all work really hard, but every one of them is pinned to their business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every one of them had um, either extraordinarily agreeable families and, um, you know, spouses and kids and what have you, or got married three or four times. Mm. It doesn't matter, same deal. <laughs> but they were, but but they, but they their whole, they were pinned to their job. Mm. Yeah. That was their thing. Mm. That was their hobby. That's what I loved the most. Mm. I don't want to call it passion. It's too weird a word. But um, I'm, that was, they were just stapled to their business yeah, yeah, yeah. in everything they did. Everything, you know, they weren't saying, well, let's have balance, you know, <laughs> balance in my life. I've got to go and play golf or play, got to go on, you know, annual holiday. If it wasn't an annual holiday, mate, the, the family was well looked after, but they were on the phone. They were, yeah, they'd go yeah. to London and they'd be, it'd be going, oh, we're going to go to London for the annual holiday because I'm going to go meet somebody I need mm. to meet. You know, like everything was around business. Yep. And uh, th- they had common traits. I did it myself. Mm. I, that's how I was. Yeah. Everything I did was around my business. And, you know, I ended up getting divorced three times. So. Four kids, three, you know, like, you know, that's, I just, I just didn't, I expected too much of my spouse, to be frank with you. But a lot of times these guys have survived, but that's because, you know, maybe their spouses are older or just different era of people. But those, that's a common trait or a uniform trait, a universal trait that I've seen in all these individuals. The guy who was the boss, Dave Nissen, who was the boss of G Capital. So G, G Capital, which was a subsidiary of General Electric, was their most profitable business. We used to make after tax three and a half billion dollars every year. Um, um, G Capital was uh, established by a guy called Dave Nissen. He was the CEO of G Capital. Same deal, same same type of person. Absolutely stapled to the business, and had a massive vision when he first started G Capital up as a nothing to becoming you know the world's largest 
financier of aeroplanes or jet aeroplane engines, you know, the world's biggest um, financial institution for consumers. Sure, you know, the GFC occurred and it killed that off, but it doesn't matter. He still achieved it. It doesn't mean they're going to live forever, but his vision was right. Mm. Mm. Well, Mark, we um, unfortunately have just about run out of time, but um, just about, just about. We, got yeah, time we for always one more. try and squeeze. <laughs> There's one always more, one more, which question. then leads to another one, which yeah. then leads to another one. <laughs> You've got your finger on the pulse when it comes to Australian property, that's for sure. Ren and I aren't in the game at the moment, um, have been obviously priced out for the last few years and there's- We're going to need a GE style exit to to afford anything. I hope you do. There's there's a lot of headlines um, that property is cooling, not only here, but in some of the hottest markets around the world. Um, And when we say cooling, we're seeing like 0.1% in Sydney. Like, wow, that's bugger all. What what are your views on property market here in Australia, and then the flow and effect to the banks? Um, you know, if those listening and thinking about it from an investing standpoint, from equity markets, what are, what are the flow and what are your thoughts on on the banks here in Australia? This is not advice, obviously, but it's just a personal view. But when it comes to banks, I think investing in banks, if you just watch their pricing, I think the banks will become make so much money out of this cycle um, in the next twelve to eighteen months. It's not funny. It's just going to make so much money because this is a period where they can increase their margins. They can actually advertise and everyone else can't afford to advertise. Um, but they can take market share big time, which is, you know, like look at ANZ's having a tilt right now at Suncorp. Mm. This sort of activity is perfect for their banks because they've got big balance sheets, very sustainable, massive back books that just generate income. Um, people can't refinance because uh, – I tell you why people can't refinance. One of the big issues is – for a bank, or me even, in my business, we have what they call a back book. In other words, we have a book of mortgages where we let money to people, right, the, as the banks have the biggest books of mortgages in the country. Most of the money they drive from a mortgage comes from the back book, not from a new, a new loan. Because when a bank does a new loan, it pays too much away to everybody else, has to advertise to get it, et cetera, set it up, blah, blah, blah. Whereas, and they make no money up front, but they make money on the back book. So the biggest danger to a back book is refinancing. So we just gone through a massive refinancing period where, you know, you're with Westpac and CBA comes out with a better price and the broker refinances you into the CBA. Westpac loses part of its book, but at the same time, Westpac refinances CBA. They're all refinancing each other. We all were, right? Mm. So our back book was getting beaten up a bit and we're actually losing the period, the length of period for which we hold a loan in our, as an asset class. Now, the net present value, which is really important to us, one of the biggest factors in an MPV calculation is N, the number of periods. So you want to extend the period of time you own this asset, okay? So, you know, people who do now do an MPV calculation, that's, that's, it's not that sensitive to interest rates, it's more sensitive to time, to N, and, and principal. So the amount of money you lend, the amount of the asset, the amount of money you lend. So I don't see – I do see the amount of money that we lend going forward being less, but as I said, that's not that important over the next two years for the banks. So the P in the MPV piece will be slightly affected going forward. But in the terms of the back book, the only time um, when if P can, if principal can be reduced, that is because interest rates are really low and people are paying off their mortgage faster. But guess what? Interest rates are going to be really high. So people will not be reducing P in the MPV calculation. Mm. In terms of N, the number of periods, that's going to extend because – if I look at you, Ren, and you come to me and you've got a loan with Westpac, let's say you've got a million-dollar loan with Westpac today. Let's say your, in, your income has been the same for two years. Yeah. You come to me and you say, Mark, um, I want you to refinance my Westpac loan because, you're, Mark, your interest rate's lower. I say, okay, cool. 
tell me your income, tell me your expenses. Well, first thing is your expenses have gone up. Mm-hmm. Everyone's have. Yeah. Okay. So you're going to have less net. Yeah. For me to assess. Second thing is when I assess you, I'm assessing you on the current interest rate plus three percent. A year ago, I was assessing you on two percent mm. plus three percent, five percent. Now I'm assessing you on four and a half percent plus three percent, seven and a half percent. That means I'm going to lend you less money. Yeah. So which means you won't refinance because you can't borrow the million dollars mm. that you owe Westpac. Yeah. You can only borrow nine hundred. Yeah. So that means Westpac will not be getting refinanced. Which means the period for which Westpac holds it holds an asset will be no longer, yeah. and that's going to last right through this high interest rate period. Which means the MPV of the bank's books are going to get bigger, and they're just going to have money cash flow just falling off. It costs them nothing to maintain a loan; it's like fifty bucks a year or something. It's yeah, all because right. all electronic. Everything's electronic. You're not going to the bank with a check and making payments. No one's taking. <laughs> you know, it's all being done. You know, they're dragging the money out of your account. Yeah, You've got yeah, automatic yeah. payments, etc. So, so to answer your question, I think. Banks are going to kill it over the next period. And there might be some scary period where everyone gets nervous about the amount of new business banks can write and then bank share prices could fall. Mm. That might be a time to buy because I think they're not going to make the money out of the new prices, the new lending. They're going to make the money out of the back book. Yeah. And it's nice and protected now, both in principle and term. So I think banks are going to kill it. Another thing that's really interesting at the, in the moment is if you want to look at the NPV, look at the interest rate. This is a period rates are going up. Everyone can hide. So I got a back book where I lend everybody the money at two and a half percent. The interest rates go up, the Reserve Bank puts up by half a percent. So I might say I'm putting up to three percent generally, but I might put my whole back book up to three three point oh five percent. Pick up another five base points. Mm-hmm. If you've got a huge back book, <laughs> the amount of money yeah. you may at a point that extra five basis points, not fifty, extra five base points is crazy, mm-hmm. and that's when banks make their money. So I think to answer your question. Bank stocks, particularly the big guys, mm. it's going to be really, a really good investment going forward. In terms of property market, prices have to come off. Normally, our normal cycle is when interest rates go up, we don't get that much of a, a price reduction. But because we're coming off such a low base in interest rates and we're going to project it to be so high, so I saw Commonwealth Bank uh, – uh, ANZ Bank came out yesterday said we're going to have a half a percent increase every month to the end of the year. Oh, wow. Every month. Yeah, okay. August, September, October, November, December. Yeah. I saw Commonwealth Bank saying we're going to have half a percent next month, half a percent the month after and quarter of a percent the month after that. I've seen – so that's one, 1.25 to, to take us up to 2.6% cash rate, mm-hmm. which is, you know, around – variable rates being around 5.5%. So as a rule of thumb, generally speaking, in new lending, every half a percent that an interest rate increases – we, the lenders, will lend you 5% less Okay. Yeah. because the assumption there is that your income is like same as it was before and we're also assuming that your cost of living is the same. Well, in fact, it's gone up. So we'll lend you half a percent less. So, you know, if they go up 2%, that's four times, four half percent, that's, you know, uh, uh, four, five, uh, four by five percent, 20% reduction. Yeah. Now, there are 3,085 sub areas in Australia that CoreLogic looks at for price rises and price increases. Mm. Up until the end of the first quarter this year, 26% of those 3,085 sub-areas in Australia had a reduced price. Last month, just for the month in June, 46% of them went down. So I've never seen this before. So I think we're actually in a really weird cycle um, where prices will actually come off across the board by this time next year. Assuming we have all the bank increase, the interest rate increases that everybody is proposing. If it stops, 
then my, if it stopped tomorrow, which I doubt very much, I, I just want to finish with one thing to tell you, to underline why I say that the interest rate increases will not stop. Two days ago, someone from the Reserve Bank, and I can't remember her name, I apologise to her, but she put out a paper, a very good paper, talking about how resilient the mortgage market is in Australia. And I, I urge anybody to go into the publications, the media section of the RBA, and grab hold of them and read it. It's about 20 pages. You know, where she talks about um, negative equity in Australia is uh, 0.1 of a percent. Um, pre-pandemic was 0.2.6 percent in Australia. That's right now, notwithstanding the rate rises. She talks about the amount of um, $250 billion that Australians have saved during the pandemic, which has never been the case before. She talks about offset accounts and redraw accounts, how, you know, most mortgage holders in Australia are ahead of market, blah, 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 right? Really a, a very good, sensible, data-based logic and deductions based on logic that say that the marketplace is in good shape, mortgage marketplace is in good shape. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be some people going to suffer. Totally, that will be the case. And she did highlight people who borrowed last year and the year before probably going to have some pro- tr- trouble when their fixed rate drops off and they go into the higher variable rates. But that's a small percentage. So everybody going, you know, raise a hand and said, Yahoo, how great's that? Fantastic. You know, we feel great. Australian mortgage market's in good shape. You know, I read another way. If I'm at the Reserve Bank and I've got that those findings, those conclusions in front of me, I'm saying to myself, well, fuck this, I can put rates up. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. a totally different way of looking at it. Yeah. But yeah. they're all going, how good is this? We can put rates up. Yeah, there's some resilience there. There's a resilience yeah. there. It can handle more rate rises. Yeah. So if I'm looking as what is the probability of us having the ANZ rate rise um, scenario, that's, you know, half a percent every month to the end of the year, or even the, um, you know, the other scenarios, West CBA, 250s and a 25, or both which one's much more extreme than the other, but both which are pretty tough periods, tough in terms of, you know, the effects mm. on the on the market. Well, it doesn't matter what they say. What is the RBA thinking? That's the only person that matters. Yeah. Not what Westpac says or CBA says. What is Because they're, they're working on a presumption. Now, how likely is that presumption going to occur? And this is what I was talking about risk before, you know, and what is the gravity of it occurring? The gravity is quite severe, in my in my opinion, in terms of pricing is because I know how much money I can lend. And I just told you, point, for every 50 base points, 0.5%. Yeah. So... What's the chance of uh, these rate rises occurring? Well, I don't know because I'm not in the Reserve Bank, but if I reserve what, read what the Reserve Bank said, she's either trying to bullshit me and trying to convince me of something that's not the truth or let's assume it is the truth for the moment. That means there's a lot of headroom in there for them to start raising rates. Mm. And I, w- I reckon that's what's going to happen. I would say the RBA aren't in the business of bullshitting people, but that will get Bryce started because he has started. a big gripe with the RBA and uh, the 2020. we won't raise rates until 2024 <sighs> announcement. But that's, let's save that for a whole other podcast, yes. I think. <laughs> They're always wrong. Anyway, Mark, we have unfortunately now run out of time. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I felt like we could have kept talking for another hour. There's so much to cover, but I know that our audience would have taken so much from that discussion. If you'd like to uh, learn more about Mark's journey and all the people and, and uh, startups that he's talking to, you can head to mentor.com.au. Plenty of shows. I think there's straight talk. The Mentor and um, Survive and Thrive. Survive and Thrive, yeah. yeah it's a YouTube series. Yeah. yeah, so check check all that out um, and do yourself a favour, listen to the one that we were on. Yeah, yeah. that was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good one, actually. And I, actually, I have to tell you, thanks very much, but I really um, I love your business model. I think your business model is very good. It's, it's quite intellectual and quite very smart. Um, and you have lots of publications with others doing the publications for you, so to speak, so you're not spreading yourselves too thin. It's a wrap-up, so it's a you're a broadcaster. I mean, all of us are like broadcasters at the end of the day. We're all like television stations, just we're putting on different platforms, but you're a broadcaster 
And uh, I can see at some stage someone tapping on the shoulder for sure. Well, thank you. Right. Hopefully uh, it's that. the GE-style tap on yeah. the shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but thank you so much, Mark. It was an absolute pleasure. Absolutely. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Equity Mates. We love hearing from you. So drop us a line at contact at equitymates.com or even better, go to your podcast player and leave a five-star review. Also, a reminder that the Equity Mates content train doesn't stop when you've run out of episodes to binge. We've got a brand new website, a Facebook discussion group. We're on Instagram, YouTube, and slowly making our way as an influencer on TikTok. Well, that's Ren. So uh, come and say hello and join the community. We'd love to welcome you. Until next time. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Meets Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.